God's timing is really interesting, isn't it? Last Sunday, I preached a two-part sermon. First part last week was about the power of deception, and we'll continue that this morning. But the next morning, Monday morning of this week, I was out early, and I normally don't listen to the radio when I'm out and about, but uh, John MacArthur was preaching, and I'm not sure exactly all the topic, but he was in the middle of it, and he said that uh, when he travels in America and around the world, uh, uh, what's the number one question he's asked? And the question is, what's the greatest issue facing the church today? What's the greatest issue facing the church today? Now, we could all give many answers to that question, but he said the answer I always give them and have for really several decades is discernment and particularly discernment within the church. He said, now, if you take this umbrella of discernment, then the greatest discernment is whether or not a person is a true believer in Christ. Now, I think it's really interesting because he said that, that that issue has really created problems in the church for the last several decades. That we are in an age of deception where it's hard to know who is a true believer. What are the characteristics, the marks of a true believer? He said because the church today... We need a discerning spirit. Just because a person is a member of a church doesn't mean that they're automatically a true follower of Jesus Christ. And how do we discern ourselves? Are we true? Am I a true believer of Christ? Am I a true follower of Christ? Am I right with God? And he says the answer to that question is, how can we discern? The the answer to that is, if a person is a true believer, is whether or not They have been delivered by God. Have they been rescued by God? Have they been saved by God? Now that ultimately really is the issue. How do I know whether or not I have been saved or you have been saved? Is whether or not I have been delivered by God. Do I understand what that means? And my life is completely delivered of sin and the penalty of sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. So I thought it was fascinating how he, the timing of that and really affirming what we are studying in the scripture because much of what John writes in this letter to the churches is over this issue of discerning truth, discerning who are the true believers in the church. He talks about the false teachers as we've studied. But another issue of discernment for the church today, in my opinion, uh, is what's happened recently in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury College. What is the Asbury Revival? Now the question is, is that of God or is that of Satan? Ultimately, it's one or the other. It's what's going on in this, quote, Asbury Revival. Is that of God? And so I'm going to answer that question through the text today, but really get into that at the end of the message to try to help us understand what that is and, uh, and, and what's going on with that. So it's good that today in our passage of Scripture that John really answers both of those issues. Well, who's a true believer? In fact, two weeks from today, my message is about the characteristics of a child of God. And there are very specific characteristics that we'll be able to see. It'll make perfect sense to you 
how, oh, of course, that, that is a, a mark or a characteristic of a child of God. But even today, we're going to see that. And how do we know what are the marks of revival? That, that'll come out of the text. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I want to read the full text. I'll quickly review uh, what I shared last week and then get into the body of the text today. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. Members of the church, but not Christians. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What is he saying? Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can't have one without the other. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you received from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true, and is not a lie, just as, it, just as it is taught you, remain in Him. So now, little children, remain in Him so that when He appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Now remember that this passage is divided into four sections. And it begins in verse 18 with the word children, then in verse 20 with the word you, verse 24 with the word you, and verse 28 with the word you. And in these four sections, he's affirming that they have experienced Christ. They have the anointing of Christ. They have the message of Christ within them. And the theme of what he's talking about, again, is this power of deception that was operating in the church through these false teachers that were leading others out of the church. The question I want to ask you today is, are you confident that you are not deceived, that you are living in the truth, and that you are right with God? How can you know that? Well, John says that God has given us everything that we need in order to discern deception when it is before us first of all notice he says we live in an age of deception let me just summarize this point quickly from last Sunday he says that there are leaders of deception it is the antichrist uh, Paul and Thessalonians calls him the uh, man, uh, man of destruction uh, man of lawlessness the son of destruction and John he calls him the beast uh, John in the book of Revelation calls him the beast. He's the leader of the rebellion against the church. There are followers of deception that he describes, yes, even in the church itself. 
And there is a spirit of deception. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 4. But that spirit of Antichrist has been with us since Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. Remember, Paul said to Timothy, now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, John talks about the last hour, that is the time of the death and resurrection of Christ until the second coming of Christ. Everything in between there is known as the last hour, the latter days, uh, the end times, all right? He says, the Spirit says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So again, we live in an age of deception, and no doubt it is true. For many decades, the church has had a significant problem with the issue of discerning who is truly of God, who are the true believers. And that's affected everything in the church. It's made the church anemic. It's rendered us ineffective in reaching the community for Christ and helping us experience God as God intended and much more we could say. Notice the second point is that we possess God's truth. John says here's the problem. Now the rest of the passage is here's what God has given us to deal with the power of deception. We have the truth. Believers should be encouraged because he says they have been anointed. Verse 20 but you have an anointing from the Holy One, from the Anointed One. You're anointed by the Anointed One, and you have all knowledge. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within you, but you also have the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God's truth in you. So they have both of those. You possess that because Christ lives in you through the Holy Spirit. So you have everything that you need to discern deception, the Spirit of God and the truth of God. Now notice how Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.3. For his divine power, the Holy Spirit, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge, through truth, of him, Christ, who called us by his own glory and goodness. So Peter affirms you have the Holy Spirit and you have knowledge, you have truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. All right, so now... Here's the third thing, the third section that he talks about. God's truth perseveres. Not only do you have it, but it's going to persevere through the times of deception, through attacks, through the problems, the circumstances that are challenging in life. God's truth is going to persevere if you'll allow it. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. That's everything you need, you have. So it needs to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and the Father. It's a big word with John, this word remain or abide. Here in these few verses, 24 to 28, he uses it six times. In John chapter 15, he'll use that word 11 times. Uh, Christ does. He records the words of Christ. And when believers begin to hear lies of false teachers or of deception... He encourages them to remain in what they already have, that is, the gospel message. He, unders, he, he urges them to treasure that message that they have heard so that they can be guided by the word of God. The person who remains in God's truth and allow his truth to guide their thoughts and their life will experience deep fellowship with Christ and God himself. 
So when someone comes along and says, I have new revelation, as these false teachers were, as many today will say, he said, don't listen to them. He said, because you have the revelation, you have the gospel, and nothing can be added to that that you need to help you deal with deception. Because if you accept that, you will be deceived. If you accept what is, quote, new revelation. John says that God is truth, that God's truth is a persevering truth, and nothing needs to be added to it. It is sufficient. As we sang a minute ago, what Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection is sufficient merit for all of us. John says there is another blessing for those who remain in God's truth, verse 25. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, not will be, is eternal life. In John 17, remember that Jesus, this is his high priestly prayer, he's in the upper room before he will be arrested on Thursday night, crucified on Friday. Here's what he says. Father, the hour has come, the last hour, as John would say it, the last hour is going to happen, it's going to begin with his death and then the resurrection. The last hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. For you have given him or you gave him all authority over all flesh. So he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life. Again present tense. That they may know you the only true God and the one you have sent Jesus Christ. So what does he say is eternal life? It's not just a place in heaven that we're going to when we die. But eternal life is right now. And that is that you have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can know Christ. You can know God through knowing Jesus Christ. That means that you are trusting and believing in who he is and what he did for you. We have that. Not only do you have a persevering relationship with him, but... You have eternal life. It's happening now. So the presence of Christ in our lives now gives evidence of the presence of Christ that we'll have with him in eternity. Sin and death have been defeated. We live in victory today and for all of eternity. But notice verse 26. I've written you these things or these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John is writing them to strengthen them. To help them to remain in the truth and not be led astray. You know, false teachers are never alone. They're always trying to gather a crowd. We talked about Jim Jones last week. What was his goal? To get a crowd, to follow him, to follow him. And that's what what false teachers do, is they're trying to get a crowd to follow them. And the use of the present tense means that that was still happening in the church. That deception was still taking place. Jesus said... In Matthew 24, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive you. He says those who have left are deceivers, and they're liars, but God's truth perseveres. Here's the axiom, truth transcends, and lies die. Deceit dies, deception dies. God's truth enables you to persevere. Now, it's important to realize that, you know, I, 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 I don't know, I don't believe there's any false teacher in our church leading people astray. This is the context that that was happening 
in many of the churches in that day and time. And it is happening in the church at large today. They're all false teachers and they're leading people astray. They've changed God's truth. They lie about God's truth. Uh, you know, too many examples to give. But we need to understand that Satan works in a very subtle way. And the way he will deceive us without, quote, a false teacher is that, again, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. He creates doubt in our minds about what God has said. Or maybe we'll read something, we'll listen to something, watch somebody on uh, a device and, and online, and it, uh, he plants that seed. And so we're not following a false teacher per se, but because we are not discerning of deception, we can be led astray. And that's why we always need to be asking ourselves, this thought that I have, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, is it, is it square with God's spirit and with God's word? And that's why he's saying, remain in the message that you have received. So that whenever you are able to see something counterfeit, you know that it is counterfeit because you know what is real. That's how they train people who find counterfeit money. How do you know what is counterfeit? Because you know what is real. You know what is the real dollar bill. You're able to see the counterfeit dollar bill. And how do I know that what somebody else is saying is deception, is a lie? Because I know the truth. And when it doesn't, this is where something in your spirit will say, it's not right. There's something about that that is not true. That's the spirit of God giving you that warning. So his truth enables you to persevere to know the truth. Notice finally, God's truth empowers us. John is saying if you stay in the truth, if you, if you stay with God's word, then you're going to be empowered. Notice he says you're empowered with strength. In verse 27, he uses the word anointing, and that, that, that word in and of itself means power. You have strength, spiritual strength. You have power. The power you've received, that still remains in you. Secondly, you're empowered with truth. In verse 27, he says four things about that truth. You don't need anyone to teach you. God's anointing, he says, teaches you. God teaches you about all things, Peter says, all life and godliness. God's truth is true and is not a lie. All right? Now, he's not saying that there's no value to teachers. There is value to teachers. Uh, I, I mean, why would he write this letter to the churches if there was no value in a teacher? Why would he call some to be pastors and teachers to explain God's word? And why do we have life groups and discipleship groups? All that's important. But here's his point. You don't need anyone else to help you know what is true. You've been anointed with the Holy Spirit and you have God's truth. And with that, the Holy Spirit will bear witness in your spirit what is true so that you're not deceived. In this age of deception, ministers, theologians, teachers, all believers, listen, are equal to God. We are all the same in His sight. We're all sinners. And we're all saved by His grace. And no one is more important than anyone else. And the same Spirit that teaches me will teach you. Think about it. Well, what happened for centuries? People had no commentaries. People weren't exposed to teachers as we know them today. But the Spirit of God taught them what they need. I can go to places right now all over the world. They have no commentaries. They have no teachers. 
but they have a passionate commitment to Christ and they're living a godly life because the Spirit of God is in them and they know the truth. They know the truth. And the same can happen for you. The Spirit of God is in you and can give you all that you need. It will guide you into all truth. Notice also you're empowered with boldness. Then verse 28, that boldness can also be translated confidence. You can be confident in God. You can be confident in who you are. You can be confident in His truth. You can be bold in your witness. Bold in the decisions that you make. Bold in in discerning what is true. Being able to call out a lie. And call out that and those who are deceptive. He's encouraging them to be bold until Christ appears. Also, you're empowered with integrity. He says in verse 28, not to be ashamed. Ashamed of sin. Ashamed because we were not faithful in being a witness for Christ. Sobering words, sobering words by Jesus in Mark 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Sobering. Convicting. Look, we're not perfect people. But it's the desire of our hearts to live for Christ. To live a godly life so that we stand before him faultless. Because of his righteousness, not our own. God empowers you to live for Christ with integrity. To glorify him and to stand before him without shame. Notice also you're empowered to do what is right. In verse 29, if you know what, that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Here's the mark. Here's a characteristic. You're empowered because of the righteousness of Christ. The righteous one produces the righteous. The unrighteous one does not produce the righteous. I can't do anything to make myself righteous before God. So why don't we just quit and let his righteousness transform us and live a life of righteousness before him so that we can do the right thing well when John talks about living in the last hour and waiting for Christ's return he links it all with doing what is right we're not passively waiting for Christ but we're passionately living for Christ and boldly proclaiming the message of Christ well let's get back to the original question what do we make of the Asbury revival in Wilmore Kentucky I was 11 years old in 1970, and I remember the 1970 Asbury Revival. The uh, person in charge of the chapel invited the students, whoever wanted to, to come and give a testimony. And so a few students came to the platform and began to give a testimony of what God was doing in their life, what he was teaching them. And then the line just got longer and longer, and it lasted for 144 hours. They would pray, they would sing, they would give testimony for six days. As a result of that, 2,000 witness teams left that campus and went all over the country to churches into 130 college campuses, bearing witness of what the Spirit of God had done during those six days of that, quote, 
revival. Well, one of the marks of what God is doing is that it begins to move out. And that's what's happened. It's moving out across our nation. So much so that this past Wednesday in Hannibal, Missouri, where Hannibal LaGrange University, one of our Southern Baptist universities, uh, they had a designated speaker. It was already scheduled for this past Wednesday. And there was a, a sensitivity to God's spirit. Uh, several things happened, but they had a service that morning and then one that night where 27 students gave their heart to Christ as their Lord and Savior. It appears that maybe God is at work. We need to know that revival is not a location. I remember when I was here before, I'd go up to St. Louis to the Billy Graham Revival. You know, we often think about revival as the week-long services in a church. You remember that? Some of those were outside. Somebody was telling me after the end of the first service, remember when they were outside in August. It was always in August for whatever reason. Week-long revival. And mostly revival meant salvation experiences. That does not necessarily mean revival. Revival is not a moment. Revival is a movement. Revival is not emotionalism, getting people worked up emotionally, particularly in praise to God. Revival, what does that really mean? By definition, you revive something. So really it's for believers to experience. That I have given my heart to Christ, but there's a season where I'm not close to the Lord. I'm not where I should be spiritually, and I need to be revived. What does John say of Christ? He records the words of Christ in Revelation. You've lost your first love. And there needs to be a reviving of God's Spirit in a person. A drawing of them closer to Him. So I believe that revival really can happen every day through daily maintenance of prayer and being in God's Word. Every day ought to be a day of revival for the believer. That I'm encountering God, and when I encounter God, something happens. I think of Isaiah. When he encountered God on the throne, he was undone, as he says in his own words. He was transformed. And so whenever we are in the presence of God, that in that moment we can experience personal revival. And if we're really experiencing the movement of God, and that's the word I really like, a movement of God, and we're doing that collectively as individuals, then it begins to affect what happens to the church. There's a movement of God among us. But there are unique movements of God. And I wrote down some words that I believe characterize those movements of God. That of humility. There's a brokenness over sin. There's a complete surrender to God's will. There's a singular focus to know Christ. That's, that's paramount. There is passionate prayer. It's almost like we see in the Bible, the word groaning. There's a groaning of prayer to God. And there's authentic praise. Now, what's the result? Well, John tells us today, there is spiritual strength. 
There's the ability to discern truth. There is boldness in our faith. There's courage to do the right thing, but also to speak it. There is integrity within a person's life. And there is righteous living, among other things. So, is this of God or not? My answer is, let's wait and see what happens. If it was just a thing that happened and is done, no. But if there's a movement of God, I think we'll be able to see it and to know it. And it will continue. It will continue to move in the hearts of people. But I will say this. I think of the words of Habakkuk, who said, O Lord, revive your work. Revive your work. Should that not be our prayer this morning? Is there something inside of you? There's a sense that you want to experience more of God than what you know today. Is there a need for brokenness over sin and true repentance? Do you feel like you're just in the doldrums spiritually? The winds aren't blowing. Not much is happening. Do you need to be revived? I'm not asking for 144 hours. The one in we just experienced started February 8th and it lasted 400 hours continuous but I do believe there's a sense that we desire for God to revive his work Habakkuk prayed that should we not pray it also this morning oh Lord revive your work not my work Lord your work would you bow your head and close your eyes there might be somebody here who would say pastor there's nothing to revive because I, I've, I've never known God. I've never begun a spiritual experience with Him. And today I need to do that. You know, the good news is that God says, Jesus said, that I will give you a new life, real life, and will give it abundantly to its fullest, to its intended purpose in your life. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to come and humble yourself and surrender your life to his life. To turn from sin and self and turn to Christ alone for your salvation. That you receive the merit of his work for you. In just a moment, we'll sing a song. And I want to invite you to come to one of the pastors who are here that will help you make that commitment to Christ. And begin that journey of faith with the Lord. There might be others here, many in this room, would say, Lord, I really need to pray that prayer. Lord, revive your work. I'm not where I should be spiritually. Lord, there seems to be a disconnect. I can't honestly say that you're the singular focus of my life. The enemy, one of the ways he'll deceive us is by keeping us busy even in spiritual work where we miss him as someone has said we're so busy in the kingdom we miss the king and so today 
Ask the Lord to revive His work in you. There might be others that God is leading to become part of our church family. This community of faith that desires to be a church that glorifies God, that pleases Him, that's trying to live in a way that glorifies Him. We invite you to come. Some may want to pray quietly here at the front alone. Maybe you want someone to pray for you. You come and we'll do that. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you have anointed us. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And you've given us truth in this age of deception. Father, I pray that you help these who need to make commitments now. In Jesus' name, amen.